Well, let me add my own welcome to that as Ben's earlier in the service and uh, encourage you to, um, uh, well, to turn back uh, in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1, the reading that Gwyneth uh, read for us just a moment ago. You might also find it helpful to dig out the, uh, the handout that we've had printed and, and slotted in. Um, and uh, if you've not been here for a couple of weeks, uh, you won't necessarily know that um, last week we began a new series looking at Genesis uh, chapter 1, 2 and 3 um, through these next weeks uh, and into March and this is the second looking at Genesis 1 uh, and uh, through to verse, chapter 2, verse 3. Uh, I have come to love this little piece of technology. It is uh, the sat-nav. Why I didn't get one sooner, uh, I don't know. Well, actually, I do know. It's because I have this aversion towards any uh, new piece of technology. I don't know why I have that, but anyway, I do. That's another thing altogether. Anyway, we bought this last year, and, um, and while I don't use it much... Uh, when I do, I love it. Uh, just this week, I popped in a postcode uh, for a journey that um, I probably shouldn't have had to have put a postcode into, but again, that's a bit embarrassing, so I won't tell you about that. Uh, but I, I popped in the postcode and, uh, and a journey that would have caused me great stress uh, because I know I would have got lost uh, was, was wonderful. Of course, uh, as I popped in the postcode, I heard the dulcet tones of a rather self-assured but very kind lady uh, guiding me to my destination. I love it because I hate being lost. And knowing where you're going is a wonderful thing. And what is true of a physical car journey is no less true of a journey through life. Knowing where you're going, knowing how to navigate the complexities of life and and having something, or or better, someone else to help me do that is is wonderful. Uh, Because life is complicated. Whether it be the big personal questions of life about who I am and what I am and where I'm going and and why should I, and and when should I, and how should I? Or if it be the other big issues of life, of bioethics, or stem cell research, or ecology, an abortion, capital punishment, suicide, whatever it is, life is complex. And even though I am a man, and like all men, I hate to admit when I'm lost and would rather drive around and around aimlessly than wind down the window and ask someone for directions, even though that is true, still at the age 48, I have now come to realise that Rather than be lost, uh, I will wind down the window and ask someone for navigational help. And so last week we began to look at the very beginning of the Bible and the first few chapters of Genesis to give us that help. For these chapters help us not only to navigate our way through the Bible, or they do do that, these opening chapters of Genesis will give us help, the help we need to navigate all the complexities of life. For these verses give foundations for life itself. So last week we saw three big themes, the themes of God, God's word, uh, God and creation. Uh, This week we'll look at three more big themes, idolatry and mankind and rest. And and we saw last week that these six themes are not chosen at random. They're not just six themes that I thought we ought to cover. They're not six themes that I've some way tried to drag out of the Bible text. No, they are chosen for us by the chapter Uh, Because last week we began with one big observation, it's on the handout, that in Genesis chapter 1 the message is the medium. You see, we began to see that the very form of the chapter fits the the function of the chapter. So Genesis chapter 1 is an orderly account of an orderly creation. We saw that the words and phrases that are repeated tell us the themes that we are to note. The structure of the passage tells us the main point of the passage. 
So our first point last week was God. Why? Because Genesis chapter 1 begins with God. In the beginning, God. And Genesis chapter 1 begins with God because he is the beginning of all things. He is before all things. He made all things. And so last week we concluded that there is more to life than just, just matter, just stuff. We live in a material world, but there's more to life than the things we see. God is there. Now, it's a big point here in Genesis chapter 1. It's a huge point for our world today. For there is a vocal minority on a mission to persuade us that there is nothing beyond the world we see. The new atheists peddle the theory that uh, physical matter is the only reality and that psychological states such as emotions, uh, reason, thought and desires will eventually be explained as, as physical functions. They're just the twitching of our grey matter. So the current fashion, of course, is to talk in terms of big bangs, the accidental explosion that has extrapolated itself out into the universe and into this particular planet in this universe and in this, into this particular life force that is you and me and into everything else as well, this lectern, this, this cup of water. Um, this is all just the extrapolation of the Big Bang, they say. Now that uh, can sound quite attractive. Uh, when these people tell me that I am just matter and I am no more than matter and you are no more than matter, so then I am not answerable to God for he's not there or to anyone else, so I can do what I like. You see, put like that, it has its attractions. But it also means that life is meaningless. We're here because we're here. Because we're here. Because we're here. We happen to be human, but as one person put it, we could have been wood or plastic or cockroach. But Genesis chapter 1 tells us there is more to life than matter. There is a God who made it all. And as we explore the themes of humanity and rest a bit later on today, we'll see how this marvellous chapter in Genesis chapter 1 tells us we have meaning and indeed where we should be heading, heading what life is really all about. And last week then we started with God. Then, because it's a theme in the structure and pattern of Genesis chapter 1, our second big theme was God's word. Uh, we saw last week, and I put the references on the handout there, that each section of this chapter begins, and God said. You'll see it in verse 3, God, and God said. But also verse 6, verse 9, and so on. God made the world through his word. That tells us that God's word is foundational in everything. Everything. And third, we looked at uh, God and creation. And we saw another pattern in the structure of the chapter telling us that what God made, that God, what God made was good. It is, of course, the constant refrain in these verses. You'll have heard it as, uh, as Gwyneth read it for us. Uh, in looking at his creation, end of verse 10, God saw that it was good. That phrase is repeated in verse 12. I, again, I put these references on the handout. Verse 12, verse 18, verse 21 and so on. God created a good world which tells us that stuff, matter, material is good. So no, we don't want to go with the atheists who would have us believe that stuff is all, is all there is, but equally we don't want to fall into the trap of believing that stuff is bad, which is the belief of many other religions, and indeed is a trap that Christians easily fall into. Chapter 1 of Genesis tells us that, the mater that material, stuff, matter is not bad. It was made by good. He is a good God who made a good world. And that leads us well into our fourth point, or to our first real new point today. Now the fourth point from this chapter, God and idolatry, again on the handout there. 
You see, while Genesis chapter 1 tells us that stuff is good because God created it, it also says don't worship the stuff that God has created. Indeed, this chapter shows the utter folly of idolatry, of worshipping anything other than God himself. See, as Moses wrote this chapter, the the religions around at the time, and and come to that, many of the religions of today, worshipped created things, heavenly bodies, animals and birds. Now, to anyone who does that, this chapter cries out, No! Don't do that! Now, we saw last week how everything is uh, in creation is arranged and organised according to its kind. Do you remember that phrase last week? Uh, again, we saw it on these uh, uh, references that I've put down here. 11, 21, verse 24. Uh, one thing that I haven't put down is verse 25. I'll read that to make the point. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. Everything is, a, is arranged according to its kind. Each is put alongside others like themselves, except God. Because you cannot put anything alongside God. There is nothing and no one like him. That should begin to tell us that idolatry is wrong. But even more obvious in this chapter is the constant refrain that God made everything. Now we can't miss it, but I I want to ram it home as it were so that we don't miss it. God made everything. Verse 1, God created the heavens and the earth. Verse 7, God made the expanse and separated the water. Verse 16, God made the two great lights. End of verse 16, he also made the stars. Verse 21, God created the great creatures of the sea and every living and moving thing with which the water teems. Verse 25, God made the wild animals, the livestock and all the creatures that move along the ground. Do you see, it's repeated so many times, God created or God made everything. We can't miss it as we read the chapter. And if God created everything, if everything is made, then we should worship nothing except the God who created all things. Now listen to Gordon Wenham on this point. Again, the the, the quote is on the handout. God is without peer and competitor. He does not have to establish his power in struggle with other members of a polytheistic pantheon. The sun and moon are his handiwork, not his rivals. And so in this chapter, idolatry is exposed as the foolish thing that it is. And those religions that worship statues of created things are shown to be foolish. And can you see the folly of those who worship the stars and the planets? And many apparently thinking people do do that. Here's the Sunday Times Style magazine from the 26th of December, just a a few weeks ago, with a horoscope special, as it says up here. Uh, What to expect from the year ahead. And then as you turn to page 16, uh, you read this. A new love, a change in direction, a fantastic career opportunity. Just what can we look forward to in 2011? Shelley von Strunkel, I can hardly believe that's her name, but anyway, here it is. Shelley von Strunkel rounds up the year ahead and in the first two parts predicts bright new beginnings that could change your life. Well, of course she does. She's not stupid. She's not going to write depressing stuff about failures and disasters. No one would read that stuff. She tells people what they want to hear. And so people, thinking, clever people, people who take the times, read this stuff. Otherwise they wouldn't publish it, would they? And the people who read this stuff, people who 
who can hold down responsible jobs and can hold an intelligent conversation, also hold this stuff in their hands. One survey conducted at Leeds University concluded that 67% of Britons believed in astrology. Well, I can't believe it's really that high, but there's obviously a lot who do. But with that in mind, listen again to verse 14. God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night and let them serve as signs to mark seasons and days and years and and let them be lights in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. (laughs) I love that at the end of verse 16. It's almost like a throwaway remark. He also made the stars. And it begs the question, why would you follow the stars when you can know the one who made them. You see, this chapter is fervently anti-idolatrous. And if you're still not sure of that, if you think somehow I've got that out of here, uh, then look on uh, over the uh, handout to Romans chapter 1. Because you see, uh, Romans chapter 1 comes to this conclusion about idolatry. And Romans chapter 1 has as its backdrop Genesis chapter 1, the creation. And speaking of all the ways that all mankind rejects the one true living God, we read these words, Genesis 1 verse 21. For although they knew God, that is all mankind, they knew him through creation, although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. You see, the Bible itself takes the first chapter of Genesis and says, don't be idolatrous, that is foolish. Everything is made by the one true living creator God. No thing would exist at all were it not for God. Everything is subject to him and that is why it's so monstrous to turn away from the God who is there. This whole chapter, Genesis chapter 1, is anti-idolatrous. It exposes idolatry, all idolatry, and tells us that it is foolishness. And just before we move on, and just in case we're feeling a little bit smug, it's not just organised religions that fall foul of the folly of idolatry. We are fools, fools when we make anything other than God the ultimate thing in our lives. And you see, that's the thing about idolatry. An idol can be a good thing, something God has made, a good thing turned into an ultimate thing. You can make an idol of family, work, relationship, sex, good things God has made. That's what's so seductive and powerful and persuasive about idolatry. It's a good thing turned into an ultimate thing. But this chapter, Genesis chapter 1, shows us what fools we are to make anything other than God the ultimate thing. A God and idolatry. And that leads neatly into our fifth point, or our second main point today, God and humanity. Again, it's on the, on the handout. See, having seen the, um, the deliberate, repetitive, orderly structure of Genesis chapter 1, we can't miss the change to that structure in verse 26. And that's why this is a main point. For in verse 26, it's not now let there be, but let us make. Verse 26 is let us make man. 
Something is different when Genesis chapter 1 tells us about the creation of mankind because there is something different about mankind from the rest of creation. And we see that in the structure. We see the structure itself gives us the point. As we read on, we see the significance of humanity here. Verse 26, God said, let us make man in our own image. See, we humans are are like the rest of creation in that we are made but we are not like the rest of creation that we are made in God's image, in his likeness. Now, five things to understand as we consider uh, that we've been made in the image of God. Um, Really, in many ways, although I'm not going to rush this morning, I barely really deal with any of these in as much depth as we might. We could really do a whole sermon on this. Uh, We could do a whole series of sermons on it. Uh, But for now, five points. The first point, very simply, humans are made. Uh, We are created, we are manufactured, we are creatures, we are objects of someone greater than us, we are part of creation and dependent on God for our existence. Now being made has twin twin implications, one that we like this this day and age, one that we don't like. Here's the one we like, Um, uh, here's the one we don't like. We find it offensive, the idea, an idea that is inherent in being made, we find offensive the idea that we are made for God's purpose because that means we are responsible to him. We want to be our own masters. But if we are made, we are answerable to another, to one that made us. However, on the other hand, in a moment we'll see that being made in God's image means that we can find meaning and satisfaction. We like that. Our existence is not a random accident. Our life has purpose. But you see, you can't have it both ways. You can't say, I want to be independent of God because I don't believe he's there, but I want meaning. Philip Adams is a leading spokesman for atheism in Australia, a popular writer down under. Uh, In an interview with uh, ABC Radio, he reveals the inconsistency, indeed the irrationality of the atheist position and of its desperate unlivability. In this interview, he said this, To me, the universe is meaningless. There's no destiny, no author to creation. To me, life is just a little brief flash in an infinite darkness. Now, hear what he's saying. Life is meaningless, he says. My life is just a little brief flash in an infinite universe. But then as he goes on, hear the inconsistency of his position. He went on to say this. It's important to love. We should be generous, charitable and so on. I just think that's common sense. Well, no, it's not common sense. Not if you're an atheist. Not if we're no more than an arrangement of matter. Not if it's an accident that I happen to be human, but it could equally have been something else. That's not not consistent. But he has tried to live as an atheist and he knows it doesn't work. So he says this, the longer I live, the more I realise that if you can't love and accept love, then you are in deep trouble. The only satisfactions that I would regard as being meaningful are those. Now, do you see, suddenly we've got meaning back into the discussion. Suddenly the man who believes that life is a brief flash and in infinite darkness wants to find meaning and meaningfulness. Now, you can't have your cake and eat it. You can't have it both ways. He went on this way. Because of my enormous sense of life's brevity, I I try to cram life with incident and live a dozen lives at once, and so I become hyperactive in all sorts of ways, thinking that this would work, some way work for me. And I found more and more it didn't, that it became more and more hollow. I now look back with some grief at the price I paid and the price I made others pay for that journey of mine. 
I realise now I was remarkably selfish and in many ways I never gave friendship anything like the importance I should have given it. I realised I hadn't invested much time in personal relationships. I'd been too busy doing a dozen other things and juggling five careers at once. I now regret, for instance, not having been a wonderful father to my three daughters. Now, will you please see how inconsistent, how completely unlivable atheism is? Here is one of its strongest advocates saying that there is no meaning and yet looking for meaning. On on the one hand, I feel quite sad for him. I long for him to discover Christianity. But on the other hand, I'm quite angry with him because he's he's so angry against Christianity. Here is a rampant atheist saying we are nothing and yet worrying about being selfish, not consistent. And here he is admitting that while he tried to live a consistent atheistic life, he damaged not only himself but others around him. See, the very idea of meaningful existence comes from being personally owned or made. Something huge is being said in this little phrase, let us make man. The second uh, point under God and humanity is that humans have a, a unique place in creation. See, being made in God's image tells us that we are unique in all of creation. Being made in God's image means having authority in creation. Now, it means lots of other things, but it certainly means that we've been given authority to rule, and you see that from the text, because it's the thing that that, that keeps being uh, said. Let me demonstrate that. Verse 26. Uh, God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock and so on. Make, God in Im- make man in our own image, says God, and then they will rule. Now he does the same in verses 27 and 28. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him, male and female, he created them. See how it runs on? God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and so on. Made in God's image means we are given authority to rule creation. Why? Well, God is a ruler. God is the ruler. We are created to be like him, to be rulers over creation. That's what it means to be like God. But we must, of course, make the point that our rule over creation must not be independent of God or without reference to God. We are to rule under his authority. Uh, just uh, uh, beginning of last week, um, Joshua got out a Christmas present from the year before, which was a huge uh, bit of Lego. Um, it was a, a big um, uh, police uh, station. It's an amazing construction. And he said, can we make it? So we made it. Well, I say we made it. I mean, I made it. He sort of watched. Or he actually he wandered off at one stage. He didn't even watch. I found, found myself making it. I quite enjoyed it, though, I must say. Anyway, um, he got out his old, his old bit of, this, this old piece of Lego. Now, we gave him that for Christmas. It's his. What he does with it is up to him. He can make the police station out of it or get his daddy to do that or he could make other things out of it or he can try and trash it. Oh, but it's pretty hard to trash Lego. Uh, But he could do that. It's his. He can do what he likes with it. But when he asks to use my iPod, oh no, that's a different thing. That's mine. I'm happy for him to use it, but I tell him to be careful with it. While it's in his possession, he has rule over it. It does what he says. It plays the songs he tells it to play, but he has no right to trash it. Now, a silly illustration, but we are rulers of the world, but this is God's world. 
and we are to rule his world the way he tells us to rule his world. We can't just do what we like with it. And you see how this begins to help us with issues of, uh, uh, of climate control and all these sorts of things. Now we are made, secondly we are made with a unique place in creation to rule the world. Thirdly, both male and female are made in God's image. And we see that in verse 27. Male and female together comprise humanity. There is one humanity. Not two compatible species, but one humanity made up of male and female. Now, please, right at the beginning, the Bible is not sexist. Oh, for sure, God assigns different roles to each gender, but this is a a glorious and unquestionable equality here. Verse 27, in the image of God, he created mankind, male and female, he created them. And this oneness of humanity in creation is very important. All are created equal, equally human. Not only male and female, but all are sharing the image of God. Uh, Fourth and over the page, um, uh, in looking at the image of God, we see that our uniqueness lies in our relationship to God. See, being made in God's image tells us that there is a uniqueness that lies between God and humanity that doesn't lie between God and, and any other part of his creation. We are not simply advanced apes. But if you don't have this foundation, that's the conclusion you'll come to. So again, the, the, the quote is on the handout. So Chief, Chief Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. wrote this. When one thinks coldly, I see no reason for attributing to man a significance different in kind from that which belongs to a baboon or a grain of sand. See, there's a man who doesn't believe that we're made in the image of God, and that's his conclusion. Contrast that with the beautiful words of C.S. Lewis. There are no mere ordinary people. You never talk to a mere mortal Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. It is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry. And then I think quite tellingly he says snub and exploit. See, understanding that all human beings are made in the image of God should change the way we relate to people. Now turn over a few pages to Genesis chapter 9 and verse 6 and you'll see this again. The fact we are made in the image of God, the fact that we relate, all of us can relate to God, should change the way we we relate to one another. That's the point. So Genesis chapter 9, verse 6 is the key verse because you'll see it has the image of God again picked up. But let me read from verse 3. Verse 3. Everything that lives and moves will be food for you, just as I gave you the green plants. I now give you everything, so it's okay to eat animals. God permitted that. We can eat animals, but, verse 4, you must not eat meat that has its lifeblood still in it, and your lifeblood I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal, And from each man too, I will demand an accounting for the life of his fellow man. Whoever sheds the blood of a man, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made man. See the point? Being made in the image of God has implications. Raise your hand against man and you are raising your hand against God. 
So we see the same thing picked up in James chapter 3 as we uh, read, uh, again it's on the handout there, this stinging rebuke. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father and with it we curse human beings who've been made in God's likeness. Can you see the point? Being made in the image of God is the basis of valuing humans differently to animals. We are not simply, if I can put it this way, naked apes, apes without fur. The the image of God is the basis for valuing all humans the same and treating all people properly. Indeed, it was the foundation of the civil rights movement in the US. Uh, in, In a sermon entitled The American Dream, Martin Luther King Jr. said, again, the quote is on the handout, you see, the founding fathers were really influenced by the Bible. The whole concept of the image of God is the idea that every man has a capacity to have fellowship with God. And this gives him a uniqueness, it gives him worth, it gives him dignity. And we must never forget this as a nation. There are no gradations in the image of God. Every man from a treble treble white to a base black is significant on God's keyboard precisely because every man is made in the image of God. Did you see, being made in the image of God is why we should care for every human life. Every human life. It is the basis for why abortion is wrong. Whereas, of course, if you believe that life is an accident, just a chance, then killing can be justified. Then abortion and infanticide and euthanasia are justified on the basis of usefulness or potential or whatever. Now, please, will you see how this is being played out in our nation? As, as a nation, we move away from our Christian heritage and our Christian foundations here in Genesis 1, as this truth about being made in God's image is being moved away from, the results are horrendous. So in my lifetime, we have gone from allowing abortion for health reasons and rape, and we've moved to termination as every woman's right. Uh, We've moved from abortions of babies with serious life-threatening medical conditions to abortions of all that are less than perfect babies. From abortion for medical reasons, we have moved uh, to abortion for social reasons, such as choosing the sex of the baby. And now from abortion, we have moved on to infanticide, killing babies after they are born, killing the ones that will not satisfy our desires. And some of you will be saying, no, no, we're not doing that yet. Yes, we are in this country. And at the other end of life, the weak and vulnerable will be persuaded that they we will be persuaded that they are a burden. We ought to get rid of them. Please see the implications of atheism. The atheist always plays God. And see this: atheism is presented to people as a, as a personal choice. Whether you believe it or not, it's up to you. It's not going to affect anyone else. But don't be fooled. Atheism always has serious implications for society. It does affect people. Uh, Fifth point, under the fifth point, humans are the pinnacle of creation. Now once again, uh, you see the change in the structure of this passage, that is Genesis chapter 1, tells us that humanity is the climax of creation. So having created humans, we read verse 31, God saw all that he had made and it was very good. Very good. Until this point, God declared everything good when he surveyed each, each part of creation. But having created mankind, God sees a very good creation. Once again, you see, the, 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 the text itself tells us what, what we're to draw out of it. 
We are made in God's image. And interestingly here, the word is idol. We were thinking about God and idolatry. Now we are the image, the idol of God. We are his icon. We are the representation of God. That's why God is always opposed to idolatry, for he has made his image in us. And for that reason, humans are then the the apex, the climax, the pinnacle of creation. But we are not the goal of creation. No, for that we need to move on to our sixth subject, God and rest, rest. Now again, the structure of the chapter makes the point for us. It doesn't end at the end of chapter 1. It goes on to chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. And it ends with rest. It was the seventh day. God rested from his work and declared that day holy and special. When I was first a Christian, the only thing I was told about the Sabbath rest was that I shouldn't work on it. Well, yep, that's, uh, that is true. That is a good thing to kind of understand, uh, the need for one day rest. Um, but this rest is far greater than that. And the real point of the Sabbath rest is so much bigger than that. Rest in the Bible is about being at eternal rest with God. It's all about being in right relationship with God, all being well with my soul, as we might put it, as the song says. And uh, I think Hebrews chapter 4 is probably the best chapter to kind of demonstrate that that's really what rest is all about in the Bible. Now again, you can read the whole of chapter 4 at home, but I've just given you a few snippets um, on the handout there. This chapter warns us not to miss the eternal rest with God. And uh, let me quote then what I've put on the handout. God's works have been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere he's spoken about the seventh day in these words. On the seventh day God rested from all his works. See, that's the creation bit. And how does uh, the the writer pick this up? Verse 9, there remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. This eternal rest. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest. The day of rest in Genesis chapter 2 says there's more to reality than just this creation. It says there's more to come than just this creation. It speaks of a final time, a time beyond this world, a time when God will rest with his people. That's where everything is heading in life. That's the point of life, to be in relationship with our God. If we miss that, we miss the point of life. That's why it comes here at the end of the creation narrative. And of course, what does Jesus say? He invites all, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. God, creation, God's word, idolatry, humanity, rest, the great themes of Genesis chapter 1. I can't end here though because they are all summed up in one place or rather in one man. Now, you might like to turn back to your, um, ha- uh, your, your service sheet and, and come with me to Colossians uh, chapter 1, verses 15 to 20. Uh, for here we see all these things brought together in none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, the man. What do we read then in verse 15? He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Jesus is the true representation of God. He is the image of God without the image marred in any way. 
He is the exact and true representation of God. And so as we, as we turn to him, we turn from idolatry. He is the way to deal with idolatry. And as we saw last week, he is the creator God, the word of God who created all things. So verse 16 we read, for by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. That's pretty wide, wide spectrum, that's everything. All things were created by him and for him. Yes, even for him. Here we th- see that, that, that he, being in relationship with him, being at rest, is what it's all about. And then wonderfully in this passage, even though we have marred the image, even though we've done the most monstrous thing in turning from him to idols, he has shown himself to be the most wonderful Lord. For we read in the bit that runs on from the bit we read earlier in the service, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behaviour, but now he's reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. And here on the creed there in verse 20 we read, he has reconciled to himself all things, whether things in heaven or things on earth, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And so, before Jehovah's awesome throne, you nations bow with sacred joy. Know that the Lord is God alone. He can create and he destroy. His sovereign power, without our aid, made us of clay and formed us men. And when, like wandering sheep, we strayed, he brought us to his fold again. What a God. Behold the man the Lord Jesus Christ, who did all this. Well, before we use those very words to praise our God, a moment of silent reflection for us uh, to wonder at his greatness. And then after a moment of silence, either the, or yes, George will then strike up and we'll stand and sing these, these words. A moment of silence first.